We're going to turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes now. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The word of God. A good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For the death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Let the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Exhaustion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness, and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourselves? Be not over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times in your own, yourself you have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understanding, to investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is as a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, said, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God made man upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face, 
and changes its hard appearance. Second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. May God bless this reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you accept our singing as our praying as well. That the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word to be written, to be recorded, would be the same Holy Spirit who would lead us and guide us in understanding your word. Spirit of holiness, wisdom and faithfulness, bring your fullness to us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, did you hear about the actress who had so many facelifts, she literally had eyes at the back of her head? It used to be that cosmetic surgery was the prerogative of the rich and the famous, but not anymore. Today you can go into some pharmacists and get a Botox injection, which is supposed to eliminate wrinkles. But however much we spend on cosmetics, the change is ever only skin deep, isn't it? The change is ever only superficial. No cream, no operation can change who we are on the inside. And we even use the word cosmetic to talk about changes which are all show but not really sincere. Change on the inside can affect how we look on the outside. Worry and stress can make a person look ill. And we've all seen the ravages of smoking and drinking and doing drugs, how that can dramatically age someone's appearance, uh, as well as the improvement when they manage to kick the habit. And the converse is true as well, isn't it? That being right on the inside can actually have a visibly improving effect on our appearance. On a physical level, healthy eating leads to bright and alert eyes to a young complexion. The same is true on the emotional and the spiritual level. Being at peace with God, being at peace with ourselves, can actually be seen in the way we look. What we're like on the inside is connected to what we're like on the outside. Now Ecclesiastes chapter 7 can be said to be about how we look. It says in verse 3 of chapter 7, a sad face is good for the heart. And the climax comes in chapter 8 verse 1 where it says that wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. Now I don't know what you were thinking when Ian was reading that chapter. At first sight it seems that these verses are just all thrown together and random. But actually there is a thread that weaves its way through this chapter, connecting all the thoughts. And that thread is wisdom. Wisdom. It is by living wisely that our appearance can be improved. Now our teacher wants his pupils to live wisely. But how? How do we live wisely? Well, once we begin to unpack his answer, we will soon discover that his teaching is deep. That his processes are anything but cosmetic. They are deep and demanding. 
Uh, Derek Tidbolt, who has written a very helpful commentary on Ecclesiastes, divides this chapter into four sections, and there's no point in me trying to reinvent the wheel. So I'm going to stick to his structure. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. They deal with the tough side of life. And we should value that, valuing the tough side of life. Then verses 7 through to 10. The potholes of life, which we need to avoid. The potholes of life. Then verses 11 to 19. The think tank of life. Prizing the think tank. And then from verse 20 through to the first verse of chapter 8. The taunting side of life. The elusive side of life. We need to learn to accept these things. So that's how we're going to divide up this chapter. And so we begin with verses 1 through to 6, the tough side of life, and we need to learn to value the tough side of life. Um, You might have seen the film The Matrix. And in that film, computers have taken over the world. And in order to pull the wool over the eyes of humanity, the computers have inserted into the brains of every single man and woman a program that makes the world appear to be as it always has been. In other words, everybody is living in a computer program, but they think it's real life. And only a few people have their eyes open to the truth. You've seen the film. But there's a point in the film where one of the agents working for the computers tells a man that when it all began, the computers thought that they should create for humanity a world where it was always happy. Where nothing went wrong, where there was no sorrow whatsoever. And they thought that that way... Nobody would question what's going on. A happy world. But it didn't work. People didn't like it. It didn't have the ring of truth about it. And so the human race got wise to the trick. So second time round, the computers were smarter. They created a world where there was life and death. Where there was happiness and sorrow. Good times and bad times. All mixed in together. In other words, real life. And it worked. Nobody suspected That it was all made up. Well I wonder if those filmmakers had ever read Ecclesiastes. (laughs) Because in the first six verses of chapter 7. The teacher says to us. Death is better than life. Fasting is better than feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. Mourning is better than pleasure. Rebuke is better than flattery. How's that? That just runs so contrary to our normal way of thinking. Well I want to suggest that he is trying to get us to see that we will get so much better on in life when we realize this is the way things are. We have to accept there are going to be tough times. And more to the point, it's when we experience the tough times of life that we actually learn. We learn some wisdom. Some of those unwelcome circumstances are actually better for us than the smooth, pleasant experiences that we long for. Listen to what the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said about his own personal experience. Listen to this. He says, I am afraid that all the grace I have gotten out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I receive from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. What do I not owe to the hammer and the anvil, the fires and the file? Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. A wise approach to life 
will help us to keep a true sense of perspective on things. That is what verse 6 is saying. Surely, yes, it is good to laugh. Parties and celebrations are good. But the noise that they create is just like the crackling of the thorns or the twigs in a fire. They don't help to mature us. They don't bring us closer to God. They're fine while they last, sure. But how many people who are the life and soul of the party go home to an empty house? I came across this story from the sinking of the Titanic. One of the women turned away from the lifeboat and rushed back to her cabin. What was so important? Was it her jewels? Was it her fur coat? Was it her money? No. She returned with a handful of oranges. They were far more valuable to her when she was cast adrift on the ocean than any of the trinkets of high society. I would say that woman had the wisdom of a sense of perspective. The tough experiences of life can help us to live by causing us to evaluate things differently and to gain a wiser perspective than we might otherwise have had. And ultimately, the certainty of death, death itself, should force us to face up to reality. So much of life, can I put it this way? So much of life is the perishable, ourselves, clinging on to the even more perishable, our possessions. Wisdom teaches us what we should hold on to and what we should discard. The tough times of life, let's value them. Here's the second thing from verse 7 through to verse 10. Our teacher shows us four potholes. Four potholes to avoid if we don't want a flat tire. He says in verse 7, the first one, extortion turns a wise man into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. What do they say? Everyone has their price. In the past, I've had cause to speak to businessmen who do business in Asia or in Eastern Europe and in both places, bribery and corruption is endemic. And it's a real curse in these countries because it's not the company that has the best product that gets the order, but it's the company that's offering their largest bribe. Now, you might imagine that this is a kind of temptation that only affects people who are in power. But there can be different levels of extortion, different levels of bribes. And of course, the lower down the chain you are, then the smaller the favour you can do for someone, and therefore the smaller the bribe. But actually, it's at that stage in our careers where we should learn to say no. Because if we don't say no then, it's going to be much harder to say no later in your career when you are in a greater position of authority. And although as a minister, I don't have any power that would cause anybody to try, to try and bribe me, I'll share with you that I do from time to time come, come under pressure from some people either to do something or agree something, uh, maybe in the church, maybe somewhere else, but something that would compromise my integrity. And sometimes money is the carrot that is dangled in front of my eyes, not usually for me, but for the church. And uh, remember when I was in Caldecrux, a certain organization approached me and asked if I would conduct a service exclusively for them. And if I did this, I was assured there would be a large collection. Well, my reply was that when this church is open, everybody is welcome to attend. I've always tried to be the kind of minister who likes to say yes to folk, but not at the price of my own integrity or the integrity of the church. So there's a pothole, extortion, bribery. Second one, verse 8, impatience, impatience. 
The end of the matter is better than the beginning, and patience is better than pride. We live in an instant age, don't we? Instant coffee, instant microwave meals, instant relationships. Why wait to get married when we can just move in together? Instant divorce, why waste time trying to work things out when we can just walk away? Well, wisdom tells us that anything worthwhile takes time. It takes time to develop. So whether it's learning to play an instrument or cultivating a garden, it doesn't happen overnight. A wise person will not react immediately to circumstances, but will take the long-term view, waiting to see the full measure of how things are going to work out. Then they'll decide how to respond. It's the fool who arrogantly makes a knee-jerk reaction. Impatience is a pothole to avoid. And it's the same in the church, friends. It's the same in the church. I've, I've been in the ministry long enough now to have had the experience of people come along and join us and they're full of enthusiasm and they're keen for the Lord and they want to see the church grow, but they're not willing to put in the hard graft. They can't cope with the fact that church life is a marathon, not a 100-meter sprint. Impatience in the church. Here's the third pothole. Verse 9, anger. Do not be too quickly provoked in your spirit. For anger resides in the lap of fools. Of course, there are times when it gets too much for us. And we want to lash out, don't we? At the children, at our spouse, at our friends, at the church, at God. But is this the wise road to take? In my experience, and I have plenty, anger just makes things worse, doesn't it? And actually, I've never felt the better, having let, having let rip. Those of us who are wise will learn to discipline our temper. Here's a fourth pothole. It's in verse 10. Nostalgia. You know what they say? Nostalgia isn't what it used to be. Thank you. It says in verse 10, Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Now this is a pothole that the church can fall into very, very easily. We, for example, are really blessed with our Sunday school and with our Bible class. There are many churches where there are no children, no teenagers whatsoever. We're very blessed. But you know what? I look back to when I was a boy. We had to hire two double-decker buses for the Sunday school trip. It's easy to hark back to a golden age, isn't it? But that's just escapism. When we're nostalgic for the past, it's escapism. We have a very selective memory. And, and we manage to filter out anything that doesn't quite tie in with our rose-coloured spectacle view of the past. So if you're harping back for a golden age, can I ask, are you willing to swap your washing machine for Granny's old scrubbing board? Or your central heating for a coal fire? Nostalgia isn't realistic. We can't go back to the past, so why do we pine for the past? We live in the present, and we have to make the best of it. So there are four potholes which the, the wise person will avoid, because really they are the forms of escapism. We're not facing up to reality. Extortion is escapism from responsibility. Impatience gives up too easily and is short on reality. Anger blames everybody for what's going on. Nostalgia wants to escape to the past and live in the past. 
But such escapism is the very opposite of living wisely. The think tank of life. Something to prize. You see, having warned of the dangers of folly, our teacher wants to set before us now the advantages of wisdom. The advantages of wisdom. Now, you know, of course, that wisdom has nothing to do with academic achievements. Wisdom is living reverently before God. It is to fear God above all else. It is to understand your world and your own life from God's point of view. Or as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, the point of view above the sun. And our teacher suggests five advantages of living wisely. Verse 12. Wisdom provides protection. Verse 12. Wisdom is like a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. That wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. If you possess wisdom, then you won't be thrown headlong into those potholes when you come across a difficult situation. Panic, despair, stupidity. These things won't seize you and then make things worse. You'll be able to understand your situation better, clearly, and handle it better. Verses 13 to 18. Wisdom provides us with perspective. Now, we mentioned perspective earlier on. Well, here we see that wisdom gives us a perspective about our ordinary, everyday lives. Look at verse 13. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? You see, there are riddles in life that puzzle us. There are questions that are unanswered. And either we're going to get bogged down with them, become obsessed with them, or we can recognise we just need to draw a line and move on. What we need to remember as our teacher says, that behind what's going on in your life is a God who is in control of everything. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament. There must have been many a time when he wondered, what is God doing to me? Think of his years as a slave. Think of his years in prison. It's only much later that he can look back and see that God was working out everything for his good. And not just his good, but for the good of his family. For the good of his nation. For the very good of the world. From, from that family came the Messiah. So our teacher says to us, listen, when times are good, thank God for that. And when times are bad, trust him. Trust him. He is the God of the rain as well as the sun. Wisdom also provides us with a perspective of honour spiritual life. Now, you read through verses 15 to 18, they don't sound very spiritual. But I believe that paying heed to them will save us a lot of heartache. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness, and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Oh my goodness. Do we not think to ourselves, the good should live a long life, the wicked should die young. Why is it that the righteous suffer? Why is it that the wicked prosper? That was the very question that a man called Asaph asked himself and wrote about in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73 verse 12 he says, This is what the wicked are like, always carefree, they increase in wealth. And, and he says it's driving them demented. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands of innocence. You ever thought that? I've wasted my time. It's only when he enters the temple. 
It's only when he goes to the place of worship that everything falls into place for him. Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Our prosperity in the here and now are no indication of how we will fare in the life to come. Wisdom tells us, in the words of verse 16, Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Now that is a strange thought, isn't it? How can you be over-righteous? But then look at the Pharisees, scrupulous in in observing the law of God, so much so that they even tithed the herbs in their garden, a tenth of the mint, a tenth of the rosemary, a tenth of the basil. But it's all show. Law was not mixed with mercy. A colleague of mine was telling me of something that happened when he moved from one charge to another. And one of the men that he was very close to was obviously upset that he was moving on to another charge. So at the farewell social, this guy went around telling everybody, don't praise the minister too much. Don't thank him too much. All the praise and glory should go to God. I think that's an example of being over-righteous. Here's the last one. The taunting side of life. Accept it. Wisdom teaches us to accept the taunting side of life. That which is elusive, that which seems to be so rare. It says in verse 20, There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. And he reminds us in verses 21 and 22 that we, if we make a point of trying to overhear what others are saying about us, we might not actually like what they're saying. And rather than challenging them, we should just remember that we're not always that complimentary about other people ourselves. And in verse 28, he says that in his experience, he could only find one man in a thousand to be upright. And he hadn't found any woman at all. Well, I just think he hadn't looked hard enough, ladies. But why is righteousness so scarce? You see, the fault doesn't lie with God. God, who made humanity upright in the first place. The fault lies with ourselves. It's our restlessness. It's our scheming. It's our search for novelty that has caused the problem. Far from being content with what the Lord has offered us, we've gone off our own way. That's why righteousness is so tantalizingly elusive. And he says in verse 23 that wisdom is elusive. I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. You see, it isn't easy to always do the right thing, is it? It isn't easy to always be following the right course of action. But friends, we who are Christians, we have an advantage over others. You see, one of the ways the Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus is to call him the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he says that Jesus Christ has become for us wisdom from God. The fact is, we do not have it within ourselves to be truly wise. There seems to be an inbuilt bias towards foolishness, isn't there? But what we cannot be ourselves, we can be through faith in the Lord Jesus. We accept his forgiveness for our foolishness. And he frees us. 
from the follies of our past. His Spirit will give us the ability to act wisely, not because we're following a list of rules and regulations, but because we are obeying the Spirit's prompting, the Spirit's leading. I don't know about you, but do you look at people's faces? Out in the street, at work, at the school gate. I see so many faces that are hard, bitter, disappointed. And that, my friends, is the human cost of broken lives, broken homes, a broken society. As mankind, as humanity, we've got lots and lots of knowledge, but we don't have much wisdom. Wisdom makes the difference, and not just a cosmetic difference. What we need to do is humbly accept God's offer of wisdom in Jesus Christ. And when we find wisdom, the wisdom that comes from Christ, we will find this is a wisdom that brightens up the face. This is a wisdom that changes our appearance. Because an inward change has taken place. Only then will we be in a position to value the tough side of life. And avoid the potholes of life. And prize the think tank of life. And understand the taunting, elusive side of life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, like our teacher, we have often thought to ourselves, I wish I could be wise. Well, we thank you, dear Lord, that this is a prayer that you are willing to answer. That when we submit ourselves to Christ and see in him wisdom from God, we can indeed live a wise life. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Amen.